Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. Who is the greatest? It is the sort of conversation that I love to have. Debating in whatever sphere, in whatever field, who the number one, the top dog, the epitome of that situation is. Perhaps you've had your own intense debates. Uh, And usually, The sticking point in such discussions is the criteria that you're going to use to decide who the greatest is. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, Charlotte was thrilled two weeks ago when I used a football example, so I thought I'd do her a favour this morning. Al, if we can have the first slide up and do another one. Um, Okay, this may mean nothing to several of you, but I was absolutely overjoyed when in my Facebook feed a few weeks ago, this jumped up, a question from Match of the Day, pick the best left back. Basically, the question is, who is the greatest, Ashley Cole, Paolo Maldini, or Roberto Carlos? And without a doubt in my mind, I I scoffed at the question even. Of course, it's the man in the middle there, Paolo Maldini. Because in my head, I have a set of criteria with which I instantly judge that question. Click on the comments, ready to throw my two cents in, and oh my words, obviously, comment section on the internet is full of controversy and debate and discussion. But different people had different criteria, which meant that every one of those footballers had a decent shout at being known as the greatest doesn't need to be footballers. It could be a discussion like this. Who is the greatest band of all time? Now, that is massively subjective, isn't it? But Charlie, you give me the eyes there. You know the answer. What is the band this morning? Yeah, but other than the band this morning, who is the greatest band of all time? Uh, Placebo. Placebo. Wow. Sorry, I mean, uh, you know, uh, he doesn't even know. Bethel. Bethel. Yeah, okay. You, he doesn't even know. But, but again, this, that sort of conversation... It needs me a band, it could be any singer, what have you. You've got criteria in your mind, which is helping you to decide an order and a list. For some people, it might be, well, the number of albums that they've sold would prove that they were the greatest of all time. People make arguments and discussions, don't they, about the Beatles and Elvis and Michael Jackson and people like that, with the number of number ones that they had in their, in their career. That would be the criteria. I mean, for most of us, it would just simply be how much we personally enjoy their music. But that's how we decide who the greatest of all time is. Uh, did anybody see that there was the nominations for the Oscars released this week? A list of people um, whose films uh, or their performances in films would be judged and decided about who was the greatest male actor this last year or who was the greatest supporting female actor, or who was the greatest at editing the sound on a film. And again, there's criteria that are used to decide that. If I was to ask you what you thought was the best film of the last year, you would again have different opinions based on criteria that you have decided to use. 
Some people might say, well, which film made the most money? That presumably would be a silly way because we all know other people are wrong, and so judging it on how other people enjoy films wouldn't make sense. But there are things that you'd bring to help you with that discussion. And so I just want us to kick off this morning thinking about this idea of greatness and the criteria that we use. What are the things that we use or that we seek after in order to make ourselves feel great or to assess our own individual greatness? What are the criteria and the values and the the, uh, characteristics that we use to assess how great, how worthy, how valuable other people are? What are the sorts of things that we think make people important? Actually, a decent question to ask is, why do we think it's so important to be important? Why do we think greatness, or insert your own word there for the same sort of thing, why do we think that is such a valuable thing at all? We will have criteria when we're judging ourselves and when we're judging other people. We might base it on intellect and intelligence. You might have a really high view of yourself or indeed a low view of yourself because you're obsessed with intellect and you might use those criteria for other people as well. It could be your net worth. Isn't that such a a familiar sense, idea that um, rich people somehow are more valuable than poor people? Rodri uh, mentioned the cost of bringing those three astronauts back safely and he said... Of course, you know, all lives are important. But genuinely, in our world, we would not spend as much money maintaining the safety of three random individuals as we would those three astronauts. In some way, sense, or form, we've decided that they are greater and worth that investment. Here's a, like a relational version of it. You are holding a position in a family. You are the mother or the father or the grandmother, the grandfather, and there are many children and grandchildren, and you assess your greatness, your need for respect and honor and authority when you speak based on the position that you hold in that family. We've all got criterias, and it matters. It matters how we rate ourselves and how we rate other people. Because how we view ourselves, how we view other people, affects our expectations of all of our interactions. If you think highly of yourself, you will expect everybody to treat you in a manner that is becoming of that status. If you think a lot of yourself, you expect people to treat you well. And if they don't, if they don't give you respect, if they don't give you honor, if they don't give you status and praise and all these things then you'll be disappointed, you'll be awkward, the relationship will have friction. If you expect people to treat you badly, then perhaps you'll allow people to treat you badly when in reality they shouldn't at all. If you rate other people as important or as not important, you will treat them differently. That's just the way of life. So it matters how we rate ourselves and how we rate other people And in the passage that I want us to get to, I beg your pardon this morning, it's Mark chapter 9, second half. Jesus deals with greatness, and spoiler alert, 
he absolutely destroys all of our categories and all of our standard thinking about what it means to be great. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up. Mark chapter 9, uh, we're picking it up in verse 30. This is what comes after the transfiguration that we looked at last week and uh, Jesus coming down the mountain and healing this uh, man's son who was um, afflicted by demons. And this is what we read, verses 30 to 32. They left that place and they made their way through Galilee. But he did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Son of Man is going to be betrayed and killed. He will rise again three days later. But they didn't understand, and they were afraid to ask him. On the face of it, you might think he's not mentioning or speaking about greatness at all. Um, perhaps in your Bible, the heading says something along the lines of Jesus' second prediction of his death. That's what this little exchange is about, and he does. He speaks about his, his death, but trust me, he is speaking about greatness. I want us to get into that by asking the question, why do you think it is that the disciples didn't engage with what he said. Because it seems pretty straightforward to us, doesn't it? Jesus has said, the Son of Man, obviously referring to himself, he's going to suffer and die, and three days later he's going to rise again. It, it, in many senses, it couldn't be clearer, could it? And yet this is the second time now they've heard this, and they don't understand it, they're afraid to question it. It's just total and utter um, noise to them. They, they, they can't deal with it. Why do you think that is? Well, I came up with a few uh, possible reasons this week. Uh, number one, do you remember what happened last time when Peter tried to engage with it? When Peter said, no, Lord, you rebuked Jesus. That will not happen. That cannot happen. You're the Messiah. Never. And Jesus' response was firm, wasn't it? Get behind me, Satan. You can, you can kind of understand when that's been the response the first time, when Jesus brings it up again, you keep your head down. You keep your mouth shut. That is one reason they don't perhaps engage with it. What did Jesus go on to say the last time? After Get Behind Me Satan, he made that amazing sales pitch. If you would follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after me. You must die to self, in order to live with me. That's the cost of being a disciple. Now again, if that is what you assume is going to follow, then probably you're not going to engage Jesus with it. You're going to stand back a little bit because you know he's going to start speaking about not just the cost for him, but the cost for everybody who comes after. They say hindsight is a wonderful thing, but I think in this case, it actually stops us from seeing the true confusion of the disciples. Why should they, we say when we come to this sort of thing, why should they need any further explanation? Of course, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Rescuer. Of course, he should die, and of course, he should rise to life again. That's just what the Bible is about, isn't it? We say with our hindsight. But hindsight is causing us in this circumstance especially 
to blend pictures, to blend categories that disciples simply didn't know were allowed to overlap. There's no question that they would have known about the suffering servant of Isaiah, the one who was going to be led like a lamb to the slaughter, the one who would bear our iniquities, the one who would die and come back to life again and bless those. They, they knew that that was a category, an idea in God's plan for the people. But this isn't Jesus identifying himself as a suffering servant, is it? He uses this phrase, this title, if you like, that he uses of himself all the time. It's the main way that Jesus speaks about himself. And it's the son of man. The son of man. One of the greatest Old Testament figures. If you were to kind of come up with a table of who can we rank as great in the Old Testament, the Son of Man ranks up there as highly as anybody else. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel, um, he's having some dreams, he's having some visions, he's having uh, this weird uh, picture of animals, beasts, great beasts, in some kind of meta way, destroying and trampling humanity. Um, but these beasts being defeated um, overcome, all our enemies being overcome. And this is what he ends up seeing. And he writes it in his book, chapter 7. He said, I continued watching these visions, and suddenly there was a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And then the Son of Man disappears, by the way. This is like the only reference to him. But let me ask you a question. Do you think that picture of the Son of Man is of someone who is great and being lifted up, or someone who is being brought low? I mean, the obvious answer is that it's of someone who is great, someone who is exalted, someone who is glorified. They take a seat next to the everlasting God. They are given an everlasting kingdom. You could just multiply this description on and on and on again. Someone with all of that, standing shoulder to shoulder with the eternal God, there is no greater or more exalted man described in the scriptures. So put yourselves in their shoes. Jesus stands before them and says, I am the son of man. And all of a sudden your mind is filled with this imagery of being lifted up. And then Jesus says, and I'm going to be betrayed and killed before three days later rising again. Do you see how he's dealing with their idea of greatness and really challenging it? Someone who occupies a throne next to the everlasting God's throne has to be a great person. And yet you're speaking about being betrayed. This son of man is going to be a ruler of a kingdom that is never destroyed, will never end. And yet you're saying before your young life is through, you're going to be murdered. Can see how just their categories were blown apart in thinking about who Jesus is, but as well thinking about greatness. So they didn't engage with it because they didn't understand. 
carry on reading and you'll see, excuse me to flip back by it, how this is definitely what's going on in their minds. Chapter 10, uh, chapter 9, verse 33, they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it that you were arguing about on the way? So Jesus has spoken to them. He's spoken to them about the Son of Man suffering, being brought low, dying, and then rising to life again. They're scared to engage with it. They carry on going to the place that they're going, and they're arguing. And this is what Jesus says they were arguing about. They were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. And he took a child had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. It's a window, I think, this, into the heads and the hearts of the disciples. And therefore, it's a window into the heads and the hearts of you and I. Because we're not that different from the disciples, are we? that there's this discussion going on in the background and it all revolves around who is the greatest, who is worthy of most honor, most glory, most praise, most power, most stature. I'm assuming that their argument went something along the lines of this. I should be top of the pile because he chose me before any of you. Yeah, fair argument to make when you're there amongst the twelves. We're the greatest because we were the first ones he called. You, You came later. He took me up Mount Hermon to see him hanging out with Moses and Elijah. We're the greatest. You can imagine that sort of argument being put forward. I've given up the most to follow him. That makes me greater than all of you. He's given me a special nickname. Did you notice that earlier in Mark? There were some people who had special nicknames given to them by Jesus. I don't know whether they all had nicknames and we've only had a few, but that could be the sort of thing. Well, I must be greater. He must like me more. I must have more status than you because he's gone out of his way to name me especially. How about this? When he sent us out in the authority and power that comes with his name to cast out demons and to heal people and to proclaim the kingdom, I definitely came back with more um, successful interactions than you did. I healed more people than you did in his name. I cast out more demons than you did in his name. Therefore, I am the greatest. You can just imagine that those are the sorts of things that people like you and I would say when we're trying to sift our way through. But what does Jesus say? In response to that sort of argument, which criteria does he say is most important of all? You could actually say he blows the door off the idea of greatness completely. Doesn't he say that the greatest is the servant, the humble, the sacrificing? He does something weird in pulling that child in as well, doesn't he? How does this teach us or show us what Jesus is thinking and and relaying about greatness? 
Whoever will be first will be last, and last will be first servant of all. This child, in any normal situation, what would the sense of value be, do you think? In our culture, valuable. Because we've woken up to the reality that the children are the future, aren't they? We invest in them, and that's not just a nice investment in them, but it's an investment in all of us. We all benefit when our children, they grow up, and they are knowledgeable, they are kind, they are good people. That benefits all of society. That's our picture. That's our idea. In this world, in the context that Jesus is speaking about it, children, until they reached a certain age, were not valued at all. There was a high infant mortality rate, It wasn't until they got close to double digits that people really started to think about them as viable human beings, people who were going to live on and provide and be a part of society. Up until then, uh, it's in the balance, it's in the air. We don't know how long you're going to be about, so we're not really going to care about you for very long. So Jesus takes someone who in their culture and in their society is the absolute bottom of the pile, isn't even considered someone who is worth investing in yet and says, perhaps this person is the greatest. Perhaps this one or treating this one well is something that we should be doing. How do we view other people? So often in our interactions, it's what we can get out of people, isn't it? We think of other people purely and simply in the value that they can provide for us. Do they make us happy? I'm not talking about taking money or kind of M's with his van. He's always available to help move in house. Things like that. I'm talking about we generally just think, oh, do you know what? That relationship isn't doing it for me anymore. I feel like I'm putting so much into it. I'm not getting anything out. Familiar thoughts, familiar words. We think about people in terms of what we can get out of them. And Jesus is here saying you've got it completely and utterly wrong. Rather than arguing about who can be at the top of the pile, we should really be striving to become the servant of all. When we're looking about who we pay honor and glory and respect and praise to, it shouldn't be the one who in any football debate or band debate or Oscars nominations debate comes out on top. It should be even the lowliest in our culture and our society. Jesus does not view the human race, think about this, as uh, a place that he can go to for worship and um, glory and praise. Primarily, does he? Jesus views humanity as people who need him to come and for him to give everything for. He blows the categories off our thinking of greatness completely. And then John pipes up, just a little bit after it. John says to him, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who who can thereafter speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us and whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name Because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. I don't know what's going on here in John's thinking. 
whether he can see some of his categories being dismantled and then tries to shift to another area where he still feels great. Oh yeah, we get that, Lord. We get that even children are welcomed, but really, we're the inner circle, aren't we? We're the set apart. We're the ones who know you. We're the ones that you've revealed yourself to in a special way. So we are greater. There's a chance that's what he's speaking about. There's a chance he's been cut to the heart, and this is a confession. Oh, Lord God, I never realized. I never realized. There was a guy the other day, and he was casting out demons, and he wasn't part of us, and I felt superior because I was part of your 12, and so I told him to shut his mouth. We, we don't know whether it's confession, conviction, or whether he's trying to guard himself and his status again. But we know that Jesus says, do you know what? It's not even about being part of the select few. Greatness. What does he say? It's about giving. It's about service. It's about sacrifice. How do we wrap this up? Well, we're still living, aren't we, in Mark's gospel, in the shadow of Jesus' call to deny self, to take up our cross, to lose everything in order to find life in him. And really, what's going to happen to you as an individual, to us as a church, is that we've got to have our entire systems of thinking, our entire um, worldview economies in our brains and then in our hearts changed upside down. That the things that so often we count as valuable, Jesus says, are rubbish. And that what we get through Christ is so worth giving up everything, even our lives for. If you carried on reading in Mark chapter 9, he speaks about having a hand or a foot or an eye cut off. And that being a better thing if it means entering life rather than going through into death. To Gehenna and being thrown into the sea and all these horrendous pictures. He says your economy is totally and utterly wrong. Your thinking is totally and utterly upside down. What is worth holding on to, what is worth pursuing. The Son of Man, the most glorified picture of a human in all of Scripture, is first going to be betrayed and killed. And yet three days later will rise again. Only because the Son of Man, the greatest of all, is killed. And having been killed, rises to life again. Is he as great? We see that eh? the Philippians that we read earlier. Jesus, who being in the nature of God, didn't count that as something to be hang on to, but gave it up for our sakes. Not just coming in flesh, but dying on the cross in our place. It says, because of that, God has lifted him up and seated him in the highest place. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It's a total and utter inversion of how we see and how we operate in the world. Greatness through accumulation of stuff. Greatness through lording it over other people. Greatness through any attribute we might naturally care to bring, Jesus says, is worthless and leads to death. Give it all up, he says. Follow me through death and find life. I wanted us to finish with um, a prayer. It's a famous prayer. It's from something called the Valley of Vision. And it 
massively sums up this idea that Jesus is teaching the disciples, and Mark is teaching us here in chapter 9, of how losing can be gaining, of how if we want to come out on top, we have to follow Jesus by moving down. The words are going to come up. I'll read it out if you can't read them. Now I want this to be our prayer before the band come up to lead us in our final song. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, you have brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths but see you in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold your glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that to be first is to be last and servant of all. Amen. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amforchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.